Welcome back to the Humble Perspectives. In this episode, I'll be reading chapter 10 of my book, For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 reads, But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. As I'm sure you are aware, or at least I hope you are aware, the body of Christ is one, all the people that belong to Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 12 describes our relationship with one another. Romans 12 says in the NIV, we belong to one another. Individualistic Christianity just simply is not known in a biblical sense. That's an invention, I believe, that came much, much later. So, this chapter, chapter 10, is entitled Community With Whom, as we began to find out where God was going to connect us next in a surprising way in the body of Christ. So I begin. Before leaving Richland Center, upon the recommendation of my friend Meredith Twining, I was offered the opportunity to pastor a free Methodist church in Illinois once we had been released by the Christian Union churches. I considered it, but not for long. I had no desire to get connected with another denomination. I've often said I got kicked out of Christian Union because of speaking in tongues. If they had known my convictions about the church, they would have had a lot more reason to get rid of me. My desire was to see unity in a visible community of believers who truly lived in Christ's love for one another and to see the unity among the households of faith in a specific locality. All too often loyalty to denominations or even to local churches separates Christians and hinders them from living the gospel as the visible testimony Jesus wants his followers to be as he made so clear in John 13, 34 to 35, and John 17, 16 to 23. Relationally, the separation from our heritage was incredibly painful. Even so, there was another sense in which it was freeing to me to be able to speak, to seek a church expression more in line with my growing scriptural convictions. We had not had to do much soul searching about where to go after Richland Center at first though. We were convinced that we had been called to missions and we believed that joining Wycliffe Bible Translators was the next step for us. So that spring, 1975, we made application for membership, including submitting long doctrinal statements on key points of the Christian faith. Therefore, in June 1975, we returned to SIL for our second year hoping that we would be accepted to serve with Wycliffe as translators in Papua New Guinea. I planned to stay in Grand Forks for a year in order to complete all the classroom work for a master's degree in linguistics. Then, according to our plan, I would write my thesis paper on information gathered about the language of the people to whom we would be assigned. This time, we sold much of what we owned. We loaded everything else into a U-Haul trailer and headed north for the summer school. The previous summer, we had met Arvid Moyne's brother-in-law, Bob Buck, the pastor of the Free Methodist Church in Grand Forks. I contacted Bob, and he was kind enough to allow us to store our things in an attic area in their church building for the summer. We actually did not take much. Since we planned to go to the mission field, we had sold most of our furniture. Besides taking our beds, we mostly took pots and pans, dishes, clothing, and books things that we could pack up in boxes to be stored. We had a few hundred dollars and some faith, along with a good dose of naivety. We figured we would need about $2,000 that summer for tuition, living expenses, and moving expenses, including whatever it took to get into housing for the next school year. Yet again, God met all our needs. Although not always in the time frame that we expected, one particular incident stands out. Having been accepted into the graduate school, 
I sought to apply at the university housing office for a place in married student housing for the fall semester. I discovered that we needed a $50 deposit even to get onto the waiting list, a list that already had about 150 couples who were waiting for housing. We did not have $50, and a week or so later, we still did not have it. Patricia and I were so concerned that one Thursday, in desperation, we skipped a morning class in order to pray for help. After a significant time of prayer, both Patricia and I felt absolutely convinced that God had given us assurance that He would provide the money we needed. We experienced a deep peace. At lunch, the couple who always ate at our table in the cafeteria asked why we had not come to class, and we told them. The next Thursday, the husband asked if we had ever received the money. Jokingly, I replied, no, I guess God's not going to take care of us this time. As soon as the words came out, I was struck with the realization that my words had revealed a core of unbelief and mistrust in spite of the inner assurance we had received the week before. Patricia immediately looked at me, and I could see that she knew also that I had unwittingly made an accusation against God that revealed my heart attitude. I was repentant, but the words were out. Later that afternoon, Patricia met me in the hall near our mailbox. Tears were in her eyes as she handed me an envelope. Someone had put $50 cash inside the envelope. The person had put a postage stamp on the envelope and had carefully tried to make it look like it had been postmarked. But we could see that it was not an actual postmark. We were quite sure that our table mates had given us the money. One of us remarked, just wait, tomorrow we will receive God's provision. We had the $50, but it was bittersweet. We put in our deposit and became number 157 on the housing request list. The next day, sure enough, in the mail, we received a letter and also a $50 check from John Meadows. His letter revealed that on the previous Thursday, the day we had prayed so desperately, John had felt prompted by the Lord to send us $50. John himself and his wife and family had been separated from Christian Union just like we had, and he had no job at the time of this prompting. Still, he had gone to the bank almost immediately and had withdrawn $50 from his and Vicki's savings account. In the letter, John apologized because he had then forgotten to send the money for a few days. We are convinced that John forgot to mail the money because God wanted me to see my unbelief and mistrust. Now we had received $100, all of which we needed, but twice as much as we had asked God for. What a mixture of joy and sorrow I experienced that day. About that time, Dr. John Crawford, a former Wycliffe translator who at this time was a professor at the university, suggested I apply for a graduate teaching assistant position in the English department for the fall and spring semesters. I did apply, and I was accepted. To our surprise and delight, because of the teaching position, we were bumped up from number 157 to number 6 on the housing list. Thus, the door was opened to a very adequate two-bedroom apartment at 415 Northwestern Drive. Much about that summer of 1975 is vague to me. My wife was convinced that I was depressed, although she talked to the Lord about it rather than to me. More than I realized, I was torn apart because of the way I'd hurt my parents and the separation that was between us. I participated in the early morning prayer meeting as I had the previous summer. I was free to pray in the Spirit, and I did. Consistent with the inner vow I'd made the year before, we did not return to the Catholic prayer meeting. At the end of the summer, we were accepted into Wycliffe Bible Translators as missionaries in training and were assigned to the Papua New Guinea branch. We planned for me to finish my classwork in the spring of 1975 and then later that year go on to Papua New Guinea for jungle camp training and tribal assignment. On the night of celebration in which we and others were received into Wycliffe, Two friends, Steve Martlett and Kathy Moser, were also accepted. Kathy's parents, Ed and Becky, 
Wycliffe missionaries to the Seri Indians in Mexico, had been working at the SIL in North Dakota for many summers. That same evening that the Mosers celebrated their daughter's acceptance into Wycliffe, Kathy and Steve were engaged to be married. What a joyous night it was for their family. About midnight, Ed lay down on his bed and Becky walked down the hall to the bathroom. When she returned, after taking a shower, she found Ed dead. He had had a heart attack. All of us were stunned when we heard the news the next morning, of course. However, however, everyone was grateful also that Ed had been able to live long enough to see Kathy engaged to a good man and to see her and her fiancé commit themselves to Bible translation. Ed's funeral was something new for us. It was truly a celebration of his going to be with the Lord in the hope of resurrection. To symbolize this joy and hope, Becky and Kathy wore white dresses to the funeral. And together with them, we worshipped in the presence of the Lord that day. As the summer session ended and we moved into our new apartment, I became aware of how much I needed help from the Lord. I remember the title of the first Derek Prince tape that John Meadows had given me titled, God's Atomic Weapon, The Power of the Blood. I listened to it again. At the climax of the message, Derek listed a number of scriptures concerning the benefits provided by Jesus' blood. Referring to Revelation 12, 10, and 11, Derek led his listeners to declare to the devil what the Word of God says that the blood of Jesus, is, Jesus accomplishes for believers. In my need, I began to declare these passages daily, and often several times a day. I was aware that the teachers who produced New Wine magazine, along with a number of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal leaders, were going to hold a Men's Shepherds Conference in Kansas City in September 1975. I wanted to go in the worst way, but my, with my new teaching job and my classes, there was just no way that I could. However, I was able to give some money to John Meadows and to Bob Buck, the Free Methodist pastor, to help it make it possible for them to go. As the time approached for the conference, I began to consider the fact that the New Wine teachers were working with Catholic leaders. The thought began to grow that I should go back and visit that local Catholic charismatic prayer meeting. It is my belief that my confession of the provision made by Jesus' shed blood had begun to work in me and helped me to be open to the thought. At any rate, I acted on this thought during the week of the Men's Shepherds Conference. When Patricia and I went to the prayer meeting, to my surprise, I found out that the leaders of that prayer meeting were in Kansas City at that conference. Over the next week, I began to think, if those leaders are open to the influence of the new wine teachers and to the Catholic leaders with whom the teachers work, then there might be hope for this group yet. So it was that again the following Thursday, Patricia and I attended the prayer meeting. A brother named Michael Callahan was leading the meeting. Ironically, it was Larry Alberts, the man who had co-written the book on Mary, who gave a report on the conference. One thing Larry discussed struck me deeply. He told about a vision that a woman in a Lutheran church had received, a vision that her pastor, Larry Christensen, had shared with the leaders at the conference. The woman had seen a massive log jam in a river. All sorts of logs were jammed up and none was getting through to the sawmill. No efforts of the loggers could break up this jam. Then the water began to rise. As the water rose higher and higher, more and more logs broke free and floated down to the sawmill where the bark was cut off, the logs were cut into boards, and the boards were stacked in an orderly fashion according to their kind, oak with oak, cherry with cherry, and so forth. The interpretation given of this vision was that it was a picture of the members of Christ's church, all jammed up and banging one another and stuck. The rising water represented the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit set God's people free, God would take them through the sawmill, which represented His dealings to cleanse and purify His people, and set them in order for the building of His spiritual temple, the church. See Ephesians 2, 19-22 and 1 Peter 2, 4-5.
As Larry Alberts talked about the vision, I was deeply convicted because of the way I had judged him and the Catholic brothers and sisters after reading his book. I had no room in my perspective excuse me. I had no room in my perspective for God to work with them, to clean them up, to bring them into order, and to use them. I knew God was working on me and changing me, but at some deep level I just simply did not believe he would work with Catholics too. By the time Larry finished, I knew that I had to confess my sin and ask forgiveness. As Larry sat down, I stood up to talk. Michael Callahan, however, did not know me or what I wanted to share. Concerned, I'm sure, that I would bring a cross-current into the meeting, Michael asked me to sit down and wait until the end of the meeting when there would be time for testimonies. I sat down, amazed and rejoicing. Michael, from my perspective, had exercised spiritual authority, and I was looking to be rightly related to God's earthly authorities. Patricia did not react the same way. She was offended on my behalf because I was so rudely told to sit down. Later in the meeting, I did have an opportunity to confess and to ask forgiveness. This whole incident worked something good in me. I felt more free than I had in a long time. For several weeks, Patricia and I went back to the prayer meeting. However, it was threatening to her. After all, we were dealing with Pentecostals who were Catholics. Both groups outside the boundaries of acceptable Christianity, according to our background. She was fearful that I was leading her into error. We would go to the prayer meeting and then come home and fight until the wee hours of the morning. After a time, I decided it wasn't worth it to have all these fights over the prayer meeting, so we quit going. We settled into our responsibilities and our life as a family. I focused on my studies and my teaching assignment, two sections of freshman English. Patricia had begun to teach at a nursery school. This was a good job in that it provided some money for us and she was able to take Elijah, who turned three that fall, with her. She was in a different classroom, but it was not at all like leaving him with a babysitter and going off to work somewhere else. We continued to attend the Free Methodist Church. We also met some folks at the university who had a Sunday evening meal and a Bible study in their homes. There were several couples and a few single people in the group. Of these couples, Rich and Sarah Foss, Ed and Esther Johnson, and at least one single brother lived together communally as a Christian household, sharing their lives and their income. We became good friends with the people in the Bible study, especially with the Fosses and the Johnsons, and we began to meet with them regularly. A few months later, in February or March, Ron O'Dell, our friend and co-worker from Wake Park Wesleyan, came for a visit. One morning during the visit, Ron began to question me about our connection to the church. We were still attending the Free Methodist Church and had made some friends there, but it was not a place where we could make a commitment or even much of a contribution. Essentially, as far as our placement in the body of Christ was concerned, we were biding our time. We knew that we needed to be committed somewhere, primarily because we knew that living in Christ, in part, means being rightly joined to the body of Christ. Moreover, Wycliffe required its members to be members in a local church before going to the field. I knew that we had no real option but to connect with a church that placed a high value on community relationships, that was open to the gifts and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that operated with true spiritual authority. We thought about connecting to the newly begun Covenant community in Lancaster, Ohio, where our friends the Meadows were involved. We gave some consideration to our connection with the Bible study group, particularly to the extended household that the Fosses and Johnsons had formed. However, they were seeking for their own connection with the larger body of Christ, either for a community to whom they could look for counsel and oversight or one that they could join. If we were to enter into a committed relationship with these folks, then we would still be looking for our connection with them. We also considered, as a more distant possibility, connecting with Campus Church in Minneapolis. We had never had any tangible connection to Campus Church, which was led by an Irishman, Ernest O'Neill. However, I'd had enough contact there to know the high value they placed on both community and missions. Some of the people connected with that church actually had businesses that had grown out of their life together and were used not only to support families, but 
ideally at least, to help the sport in its mission's involvement. Ron shared with me what amounted to a word from the Lord. He said that I needed to connect with the Body of Christ community right there in Grand Forks, the community that sponsored the prayer meeting we had attended, since that was obviously where I knew God to be working in the city. Ron warned me that I was in danger of slowly dying spiritually because I did not have a functional connection to the body of Christ. I knew that he was correct. I had appreciation and affection for the Bucks and others at the Free Methodist Church, but it wasn't the source from which Patricia and I were being sustained and helped to grow. Therefore, in the spring of 1976, we began to attend again the prayer meetings held in the basement of St. Michael's Catholic Church. In the months during which we had not been attending, one brother in particular, Mike Highness, had reached out to us persistently. Through Mike and his wife, Janetta, we had learned a bit more about the community. Although about 70% of the members were Roman Catholic, we had discovered that the other members were either of various Protestant denominations or were non-denominational. The body of Christ was an ecumenical community. Now in our background, the word ecumenical was not a good word. We associated this word only with the ecumenical movement represented by the National and World Council of Churches, which we considered an effort by liberal denominations to bring various denominations together around the lowest common denominator. In other words, we saw the ecumenical movement as a compromise of the truth and a denial of biblical authority. For the most part, I think this was a pretty fair evaluation of a good deal of that movement. However, in the Body of Christ community and other similar communities, the word did not connote compromise. Rather, ecumenical in this context meant coming together in committed relationships of personal covenant love in recognition of brotherhood in Christ while respecting and supporting each person's heritage and connection to the various denominations. The members of the Body of Christ community did not consider the community to be a church. Rather, it was an intentional Christian covenant community. My friend Jordan Bages offers this explanation of intentional Christian community. Quote, Intentional Christian community is made up of believers who have made conscious, deliberate, and practical choices to commit their lives to God and to one another in ways that direct their lives and set the pitch for their lifestyles. This kind of community is distinct and different from the natural or incidental community that exists within neighborhoods or in the workplace that just happens by coincidence or circumstances outside of one's control. From his website, www.rebuildjournal.org. We had much to learn about this, what this meant in practice. But the first step was to overcome our fear and abhorrence of the word ecumenical. Over the next several years, some of us who were involved began to use the word interdenominational instead of ecumenical because the former had a less negative connotation for many conservative Christians. However, even interdenominational had to be defined clearly so as to make clear that this type of community was an effort to live in unity without compromising fundamental convictions about the faith. As we began to regularly attend the prayer meetings, we began to get acquainted with the people in the Body of Christ community. We were invited by some members to visit them in their homes. I remember having a meal with Joe and Cindy Stokes. The Stokes had at least one small child at the time, and they also had several single adults living with them. Joe had been raised in the Church of Christ, but he had strayed from the Lord. He had come into a relationship with Jesus through the Jesus Movement and had become something of a street preacher. Then he met Larry Alberts and some of those who formed the Body of Christ community. In his enthusiasm for what God was doing with these people, Joe had become a Roman Catholic. Cindy, who had come to the university in Grand Forks, had also become a member of the community. They were one of the first couples to marry as members of that community. We had already begun to gather, gather the items that we would need in jung, jungle camp in Papua New Guinea, 
once I completed the classwork in the linguistics program. But we still did not have a church year at home when the school year ended. About that time, Dr. John Daly, who led the SIL at the University of North Dakota, contacted us and asked if I would be willing to come back to the summer school and serve as a teaching assistant. Although there would be only a small monetary compensation, at least the opportunity provided us with a place to live and covered most of our expenses for the summer. It also meant that we could keep getting acquainted with the body of Christ. Therefore, I accepted the opportunity to serve. When it was time to move out of our student housing apartment and back into the dorm with the SIL people, my kindness offered to bring some friends over to help us clean out the apartment and move our things to storage for the summer. On the designated Saturday morning, both we and also our neighbors were stunned when 25 or 30 people showed up at 8 a.m. with ladders and all the cleaning supplies. After a song and a short prayer, they went to work. Someone must have organized them into teams. Some climbed the ladders, and beginning from the highest point of the cathedral ceilings, they cleaned right down the ceiling, on down the walls, then across the floor to the doors. Every window, every nook, every cranny, including the furnace room, were cleaned spick and span. Now, I left as the work was starting in order to buy no donuts for the crew. Before I got back, most of them were, had finished and headed home. My neighbor was still standing in front of our apartment. As I came up the walk carrying several boxes of donuts, he exclaimed, Where do you get friends like these? I couldn't help but think of Jesus' words in John 13:35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Here was a tangible testimony, observable by all our neighbors, about how God's people take care of each other. People outside the church cannot observe for themselves our love for one another when we are gathered in churches and Bible studies, but they can see it on display in a practical expression of love, such as we had seen that day. That spring, I also met with Michael Callahan, who was leading the Body of Christ community while Larry Alberts was living temporarily in a similar but larger community, the Word of God community in Ann Arbor, Michigan where he was receiving some training. Michael told me that if we were to seriously, to seriously consider joining the community, we would need to participate in the Life in the Spirit seminar. The next one was scheduled that very summer. Therefore, on Thursday nights during June and July, we attended the seminar sessions before the prayer meeting. The Life in the Spirit seminar is an evangelistic tool that progressively leads the participant into a personal relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The material itself covered mostly things that Patricia and I already knew. However, I've come to see how wise it was of the leaders to direct us to start at the beginning. For one thing, if we were able to decide, if we were to decide to join the community, then we would come in like anyone else. We would have demonstrated our willingness to submit to leadership and to be taught. There'd be no special favors. Also, it would help us discover whether we could agree with the foundations for life in the community and build our lives together with the other members. I discovered the seminar to be doctrinally sound and experientially balanced. It is an excellent tool, especially for reaching people with a Christian background who may never have had a personal relationship with Jesus or who have strayed from the church. In addition to attending the prayer meeting, which was evangelistic in nature, that summer we were invited to the Body of Christ community meetings for membership. Several Sundays, these meetings were held in a city park. I quickly discovered that I was still a coward about my faith. I felt awkward, conspicuous, and even ashamed to pray and sing in a public place. I was chagrined that these Catholics were so bold in their worship of the Lord while I an evangelical Protestant, a Bible-based believer, supposedly sold out to Christ, a missionary in training, training, wanted to hide behind a tree and deny being part of the group, while my new friends were freely and enthusiastically worshiping right out in public. As the summer school drew to its close, we still had not made a commitment to the community, 
and still had no local church home. After consulting with our Wycliffe advisor, we decided to stay in Grand Forks another year in order to pursue membership in that community. We also consulted with the leaders who expressed their openness to our moving toward membership with the understanding that our intention was to go out from the community to serve with Wycliffe and Papua New Guinea. Unexpectedly, the opportunity arose for me to be an instructor in the university's English department for the next school year. I was to teach, teach two classes each semester and would receive $750 for each class, which meant that we would have an income of $3,000 for about nine months. We learned that Jim and Cindy Lilly, members of the Body of Christ community, owned a house with three apartments. They offered us the opportunity to rent one of those apartments starting September 1st. SIL ended in mid-August. The apartment would not open for two weeks, but Mike and Janetta Highness opened their home to us while they were away in Arizona on vacation. Little did I know that I would encounter the Lord in a powerful and unique way while in the Highness's home. The Lord revealed something of His heart and His way to me on the evening news of all things. Patricia and I had never owned a television, but Mike and Janetta had one. While I was casually watching the news one evening, a story was shown concerning civil war in Lebanon. This was nothing special in itself since in the 1970s it seemed that civil war in Lebanon or battles between Lebanon and Israel were constantly in the news. This time, footage from Beirut grabbed my attention. It was a street scene showing city buildings and rubble where buildings had been. In the distance, I could hear blast of mortar fire, the rat-a-tat-tat of machine guns, and the rumble of tanks. Then an Arab shepherd leading a few dozen sheep came into view, walking up the street between a tall building on one side and rubble on the other. The shepherd was in the front at the point of a triangle of sheep packed tightly to one another, the whole flock following as close to the shepherd as possible. Tears squirted from my eyes as I watched. The mental lights went on. I understood more fully what Jesus meant when he said, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 2-4, Through these, this news footage, I perceived in a new way the relationship of the shepherd with the sheep, not only of Jesus, the good shepherd with his sheep, but also the re relationship of a true under-shepherd or a pastor with the part of Jesus' flock entrusted to that under-shepherd's care. A shepherd or a pastor is one who walks with the sheep, leading them through the war zone of life in an intimate relationship of mutual love and trust. God spoke to me through the evening news to give me a deeper understanding into how he was calling me to live my life. Moving Day on the first Saturday in September, it was time to move into our apartment on University Avenue. As it turned out, there were several moves scheduled among community members that day. The whole community was mobilized and organized for the task. Moving day began with several dozen community members gathering for prayer in the backyard of Gary and Joanne Altendorf's house. Loud prayer, everyone praying at the same time. At 7.30 on a warm Saturday morning on a street with houses built close together, bedrooms open with normal people trying to get a little extra sleep. Of course, I wasn't nervous or anything. When the prayer time ended, people took off in well-organized groups. 
Before dinner time that Saturday, five households, including ours, had been moved. In one case, the Altendorf family exchanged houses with the Givan family. Crews of ladies went into those two houses and packed up the things in kitchens, bathrooms, and such. While the men moved furniture and boxes, the empty rooms were cleaned. Then, as the furniture and boxes were brought into the new house, things were unpacked and put into place. The Lopez family moved into a new house, and two single ladies moved into the apartment above ours. By dinner, everyone was virtually settled into a new residence. Never before or since have I seen anything like that. Thus, our life in the body of Christ community began. Over the next few months, we had opportunity to get better acquainted with the people in the community and with the lives of love and service that they had chosen to live together. We lived on the first floor of our apartment. The two single ladies in the community shared the second floor apartment. Another young family lived in the basement apartment. The wife was very interested in community while the husband was cautious about committing himself deeply. After a time, we began to participate in David and Deanna's White's extended household. The Whites lived a few blocks away in a larger house that they shared with several single adults. Another couple, Dan and Mary Kay Gleason, who had gone through the Life in the Spirit seminar with us, also were connected with the Whites, as well as a few single men who shared a house together. Sometimes we would all have a meal together. Regularly, the ladies would meet in a small group, usually in the daytime. Likewise, the men got together in a group, mostly on an evening because of work schedules. Soon after Labor Day, we were invited to participate in a special weekend, a community weekend it was called. Larry Alberts returned from Michigan for this weekend of teaching and fellowship in which we were introduced to the community's values and basic commitment. For 12 weeks following the community weekend, Patricia and I participated in the 12 Lesson Foundations course weekly classes in which we were given further practical teachings on matters such as prayer, Bible reading, spiritual authority, working out relational difficulties, reordering our priorities in order to live a community lifestyle. This course led up to the opportunity to make an underway commitment to the community. Perhaps it was the need to make a decision about that commitment that made me face up to an increasing dilemma. It was still our full intention to go to Papua New Guinea. However, I began to wrestle with whether or not the Body of Christ community would be our home church. The Body of Christ, of course, made no claim to be a church. In fact, the community received, refused to see itself that way. But for me, the community was more like a New Testament church than any church I had seen. However, later in the fall, I began to have reservations, not about the community but about our readiness to go to the mission field. I had grave doubts about my ability as a linguist. Even though my professors had always encouraged me that I was doing well, I never felt that I really had a handle on this field of study. In part, I have since come to the realization that my insecurity had to do with the reality that in linguistics, I was being introduced to a new paradigm, a new way of thinking about language. In addition, in training, of necessity, we had to deal with small collections of data that illustrated various learning points and gave us opportunity to practice. What we could not do in the training period was to see enough data from any language to begin to see how we were learning to fit into a whole. How the data we were learning fit into a whole. As a big-picture person, I felt overwhelmed by the mass of details that seemed so unconnected. I also had found that I did not have a love for the subject matter. I could do the assignments, but reading and studying linguistics material on my own was drudgery. Whereas for some of my closest SIL fellow students, linguistics was something they loved. It was a calling to them. This bothered me enough that on January 1977, I wrote to our Wycliffe advisor, John O'Rourke, and opened up to him my concerns. For some reason, he turned our situation over to another Wycliffe advisor to missionaries in training, Wayne Huff, the same Wayne Huff whom we had met and had appreciated so deeply while we were at Wake Park Westland. Wayne responded to my questions and doubts with reassurances reassurance that Wycliffe's esteem for me was not shaken, 
reassurances that most missionaries in training went through doubts of various kinds. He made clear that Wycliffe still wanted us to serve, but even more wanted us to be confident in the Lord as to what direction to take. That decision, he said, was ours to make. I had also taken counsel with our community leaders, and they too were expressing support for me personally while telling me the decision to go or to stay was one that I would need to make. As I pondered Wayne's letter, I had to admit to another even more important internal struggle. I wrote back to Wayne about my concern that my motivation for going out with Wycliffe might not be pure. Certainly I valued greatly Wycliffe's mission to make the scriptures available in every language group, and I still do. But Bible translation was not my primary motivation. Rather, it was my first desire to see churches planted in every tribe and language group. I had begun to wonder if translation for me was not a means to an end rather than my primary vision. Of course, I'm sure that every Wycliffe translator longs to see a church raised up among the people he or she serves. However, Wycliffe missionaries go into other nations first as SIL linguists, often under contract with national government to do linguistic work. In many countries, they are not allowed to work directly to see churches planted, and certainly that would not be their primary task. I did not know what arrangement Wycliffe had with Papua New Guinea, but I began to sense that I might at least find myself in an internal conflict of interest. Just as important, I told Wayne about my concern over my youth and my relative spiritual immaturity. How was I to be, along with my wife, the primary, if not the only, representation of Christ that some tribal group would see? I had seen in the scripture that God often spent decades dealing with men to prepare them to fulfill his call in their lives. How could I honestly at that point say, like the Apostle Paul, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ? Although I did not write to Wayne about it, I was also concerned because there were several issues in our marriage that Patricia and I had not worked out. I began to think about the fact that if we were to go live with a tribal group that had not been exposed to the gospel, then our marriage would be the primary picture that this people would have of Christ and his church. See Ephesians 5, 22 33. I was uneasy because I did not believe that our relationship was enough of a mirror image of Christ and his bride. It was not that I wanted to hide this concern from Wayne, rather I did not want to share something that might represent Patricia in any negative light. Of course, I talked about all these things with her. She was aware of my struggle and saw the letters that I wrote. She obviously knew that we had plenty to work on. But she was not concerned enough that she really wanted to reevaluate our plans to go out as missionaries. And she was certainly not wanting to stay in a community that practiced the Pentecostal gifts of the Spirit, let alone a Catholic community. This alone, I think, demonstrates the lack of unity and vision and Christian experience between the two of us at that time. Over the course of a few months, it became increasingly clear to me that whether or not we made a commitment to the community, I could not in, any, in good conscience go with Wycliffe at that time. Finally, I told Patricia exactly where I stood. One, I simply could not go to the mission field because of the concerns stated above. Two, I absolutely would not make a commitment to the Body of Christ community unless she of her own volition would make that commitment with me. I told her that I was releasing her into God's hands to make a decision about the community, that I would not pressure her further. This put Patricia in a tough place, of course. She wanted to please God. She also wanted to stand with me. However, my decision was forcing her to die to what she had felt was her call to be a missionary. In addition, she was having to battle with fear, fear of new things things that she had not experienced for herself, and things that she was not fully convinced were valid. Fear that joining community would cause further separation between us and my parents. Fear of Catholicism, fear of Pentecostalism. As she says, she finally came to a place where she cried out to God, I know that I must submit to my husband as unto you. 
I will do so even if he leads me to the very gates of hell. If he does, you will have to rescue me. This surrender did not resolve all her fears, but it did allow her in good conscience to commit to the community with me. On March 24, 1977, I wrote the following letter to Wayne Huff. I came to Wycliffe seeking God's will, and the door was not closed. I came to the body of Christ in obedience to God's will, and he has not said for me to leave. Thus, although it's hard on my pride, and though I don't know what to say to those who've been generously sending in support for several months, I believe that I must ask Wycliffe to release me to serve God through this community. Wayne wrote a gracious letter back on behalf of Wycliffe. He expressed their willingness to honor our decision, if it was final, even though they wished we had decided differently. The letter was warm, but official, until the closing. There, Wayne listed several specific passages from Psalms about which he said, I am praying that these verses will bring guidance and edification to both of you as you wait before the Lord and make your decision. God bless you real good. Although Wayne listed only references, here are the actual passages as translated in, new, in the New American Standard Version, which I was using most of the time in 1977. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart, my mind, my heart, for thy loving kindness is before my eyes, as I have walked in your truth. Psalm 26, 1-3 My foot stands on a level place. In the great congregations I shall bless the Lord. Psalm 26, 12 the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Psalm 27, 1. One thing have I asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my, the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Psalm 27, 4. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Psalm 27, 6. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my foes. Psalm 27, 10 to 11. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 27, 14. Thou art my hiding place, thou dost preserve me from trouble, thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O you righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 32, 7-11 As I read these verses, I sensed that the Lord had used Wayne to confirm the decision that we needed to make. As I meditated on them, I became even more convinced that, of their applicability to our decision. One, in the final analysis, it was God's vindication, not man's, that we needed Two, the reference to the parents forsaking the psalmist was, of course, striking in the light of the breach between me and my parents. Three, the psalmist wrote that we're to walk according to God's loving kindness. The Hebrew word translated loving kindness is hesed, which can rightly be translated covenant love. And here we were, ready to make a commitment to a covenant community. Four, the passages emphasizing worship with shouts of joy and singing songs of praise and deliverance brought to mind defining characteristics of charismatic worship. Five, in New Testament thinking, the house of the Lord and the temple refer to God's people, to his community, the church, where we were choosing to commit our lives. Six, although the passage refers to a level path in a spiritual sense, Anyone who's been in Grand Forks can relate literally to a level place as well. The land is as flat as a tabletop there in the Red River Valley. Seven, it was certainly my desire to walk willingly by the counsel of God's eye and not require him to 
forced me into his will. On April 24th, we sent our formal letter of resignation. We received formal letters of release from Wycliffe Bible Translators and from the Summer Institute of Linguistics. We also received a wonderful letter of support from Wayne Huff. Just before we had sent in the formal resignation, however, Michael Callahan and another leader came to us with information they thought we must have before we cut our ties with Wycliffe. The leadership team of the community had come to the conclusion that the Body of Christ community was to move to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area in order to merge with the larger Servants of the Light community, the same community that had sponsored the Catholic Charismatic Prayer Meetings that we had visited while at Wake Park. At that time, the leaders were still working through this with the people who were fully covenanted with the Body of Christ. We had not yet formally made the underway commitment, but it was important to the brothers that we not make this major direction change without the knowledge that we would likely need to move. To us, this was not bad news. After our time at Wake Park, thinking about moving to Minneapolis was thinking like thinking about moving home. Interestingly enough, our four-year-old Elijah had been telling us for several weeks that we were going to live in Minneapolis, a place that, from which we had moved when he was less than 15 months old. That spring, Patricia and I made our underway commitment to the Body of Christ community, a commitment by which we were saying that we believed the Lord was calling us to join our lives to the brothers and sisters in the Body of Christ community, that we wanted to live according to the community's values, and that we were willing to follow the directions set by the community's leaders. It was an underway commitment because it brought us into a time of trying it out, we would live the community life as fully as we could, as fully as we could, while both we and the community mutually sought to discover whether it was God's call for us to be joined to one another in a formal and lifelong covenant relationship. 